2: Hello! Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. What
0: a what a pleasant time of the week this always is. It's just <laughs> great to see you all.
2: And you guys. And you guys. Max, what do you got for us this week? Uh, this week on the show is Tejal Rao. She is... well, she has a couple different jobs. She works at the New York Times and she writes about food. She is... Uh, a columnist for the New York times magazine. She also writes features for the magazine about food. Uh, But she's a critic, a restaurant critic. She's the California restaurant critic, which was a uh, job that did not exist at the New York times until they created it for her. And uh, so we talked about how you wear all those different hats. And then we talked a lot about what it's like to be a restaurant critic during a global pandemic when uh, restaurants are, are, uh, struggling in the way that they are. Uh, so that's where we started, and then and then we went off in all kinds of directions, and uh, it was a real pleasure to talk to her. If you want to start somewhere and go out in a bunch of different directions, do it with an email newsletter from MailChimp. They make it so easy. I set one up this
0: week. Can you believe it? I, have, I haven't said that for a couple of years, because I've been mostly letting them ride, but I set a new one up. I did it with MailChimp. I thank them for their sponsorship of the show. And uh, now here's Max with Tejal Rao.
2: Hey, Tajel.
3: Hi, Max.
2: Thanks for for coming on the show.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
2: You and I have talked before occasionally, but uh, never at the length that I plan to talk to you now.
3: Hours and hours.
2: Yeah, this is going to be, I don't know, I don't even know what time it is in the West Coast. I can't do that kind of math, but you should just prepare. We're going to be here for a long time. (laughs) Because I have a lot of questions for you. I don't know very much about what it means to be a restaurant critic, but even I, an uninformed person could surmise that right now is a strange time to be a restaurant critic and I, would, I am very interested in how you got to this place that you are at you have written some incredible features that I want to talk to you about but I, I was wondering if we could start with what your life is like right now as the New York Times food critic in California during a global pandemic in which restaurants are closed suffering fighting for their lives what is your job right now?
3: The job is not clear to me what it is. It keeps changing and which is fine. I feel really lucky to have a job right now. I I'm mostly in my car. I'm in my car all the time and I'm either driving to a restaurant, driving to someone's house to pick up food I ordered on Instagram, just driving around poking my nose through windows like it's a I feel like I don't really understand everything that's going on or what how I should be covering it so I'm approaching it differently with every story that I do I've written a little bit about like policy about um specific restaurants that are somehow making it work right now I've written about the sort of ethical quandary of delivery just Everything I can think of that maybe readers are wondering about. Readers who would normally be going to restaurants. But the real answer is I I don't know. And every week is kind of different.
2: Do you feel some responsibility to be part of helping restaurants in California survive?
3: I mean, I probably shouldn't feel that. But yeah, I, I do, I do feel it a little bit because it's not just the restaurants. It's not just these spaces and like the delicious food or, you know, it's all these people who are out of work. It's like workers, you know, and I'm not a representative for any of them. You know, I interview people and try to clarify what's going on, but I, I do feel some sense of responsibility. And I also know that I'm not really supposed to.
2: How did you become a food writer? Like my first experience of you is you're writing in the Village Voice. And I did some sleuthing on the internet and I couldn't find out a lot about how you got there. How'd you get there?
3: (laughs) Okay. So I did do a bunch of freelance writing before I got a full-time job at the Village Voice but it was mostly stuff for free. Like, do you remember the Atlantic had a food blog for a little while? And so I, I wrote some things for them unpaid and then gourmet when it was still around, they had a really great blog or website. I wrote for them timeout like those little 100 word pieces about how much I love canned sake or whatever. I did a <laughs> few of those um, or like what to cook with shad roe, And that, That was like five years I was doing that. And I was also cooking. I was hosting a supper club in my apartment to make rent. So I would do it two or three times a month, depending on how much money I had to make to make up the fact that the writing didn't pay at all or very little. Um, And then I was also copy editing and picking up translation, like French to English, English to French translation gigs on Craigslist. So all, all this stuff.
2: How does the economics of a supper club work?
3: Uh, well, I didn't have, maybe this was like a little bit before supper clubs became, you know, they would have sponsors, like liquor sponsors and all that kind of stuff. I didn't have that. I would just spend money on groceries and then cook for about 25 people. What would you cook? Sometimes it was really, really fancy, kind of um, copying stuff from fine dining. Me- like I used to work in kitchens. I used to work in restaurant kitchens. So I would pull things I loved from menus I'd worked on. And then sometimes it was just like fried chicken with biscuits and fixings and all kinds of stuff. And my apartment was just one giant table across the whole thing.
2: (laughs) And it was like friends coming? How would people find out about it?
3: Yeah, it was friends. Like I emailed friends and said, would you come? Would you pay $30 a person if I did this? And then you could join if you emailed us to make a reservation. It was my partner and me. And um, so it was friends and friends of friends.
2: And when you were doing that and writing these sort of blog posts for Gourmet and The Atlantic, like what was, uh, what was your ambition then? What did you want to be doing?
3: I wanted to be writing. I wanted to be writing fiction. I wanted to be writing anything, really. I didn't know that there was a path to journalism. Like I think there are things you were supposed to do, like get an internship or apply for a fellowship, all these things. I didn't really know I could do that. I was just pitching pitching really badly too (laughs) Why do you say badly? You know those pitches that it's like I'm really excited about X (laughs) and the editor's like who the fuck are you? (laughs) I don't care that this thing is exciting to you, (laughs) like that's not a pitch you know, Um, but that's definitely how I pitched
2: And you wanted to be doing any kind of writing? Were you focused on food?
3: I was focused on food just because food was the only thing I knew anything about and I'd worked with food so it just seemed like a good way in.
2: And so you're writing these posts, you're maybe somehow getting like, I'm excited about X pitches accepted. <laughs> and then I assume you started landing some pieces at The Voice?
3: No, I hadn't written for The Voice at all. The job was posted on Media Bistro or some one of those sites that I would like constantly scroll through. The job was posted, and I applied, and I think they had narrowed it down to a few people. And they they asked me to do a fake review of a... Not a fake review, but to go and do a... a
2: like a, a sample. Yeah,
3: a sample review. So it was like a review test. Yeah, it was <laughs> exactly. That's what they call it, a review test. And then uh, come in for an interview, and I did that. And I guess they read some of the stuff that I'd written before. Um, and I got the job, which is very... I feel really lucky.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's wild. I mean, independent of like, uh, clearly you're very good at it. Like, I spent a little bit of time in all weeklies. Like, they never just give people jobs; they always put them through the ringer beforehand. Yeah, and you hadn't done much reviewing at that point, right? I hadn't
3: done any reviewing. I mean, I'd written pieces for the Atlantic that maybe would read like a restaurant review, but they weren't.
2: Well, how how did you figure out how to do it?
3: I don't. I don't know. I really don't know. It was, I do think like the village voice was, it was like my equivalent of journalism school was the village voice. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the first time where I had the same editor every week. So I think that is how I learned to do stuff. Like I wrote what I wanted and I started to get more confident.
2: When you started getting that confidence that you're talking about, like how did that manifest? What did that, what did that look like for you?
3: Um, I don't know. I don't think I have it anymore too. I think I just like had it that one year and then it went away. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Like I, I wish I was confident in the way that I was when I had just started writing, but now I'm not.
2: What was the thing that was there for that brief period of time? How would you describe it?
3: Maybe like naivety. I, I don't know. I, I.
2: Did you feel like you knew what you were doing?
3: No, but it didn't bother me. Right. And now I think about everything so much more. (laughs) It's painful.
2: I feel like that's inverted from how I normally understand these things to go.
3: You mean usually writers get more confident as they get older or more experienced? Yeah, I think so. Maybe I'm romanticizing that time. You know, it was just one year at the Village Voice. I left in like a very messy way. I couldn't hold down a job after that for a little while. I was like an editor at Sever for six months. I was a writer at Tasting Table, which was this email newsletter for six months. Like I couldn't figure things out after that. So I've romanticized that period of time.
2: You don't have to answer if you don't want to, but what was the messy way in which you left?
3: Oh, the village voice fired a bunch of longtime staffers, including people who I considered like my mentors or, you know, people who were really, really important to me, and I left in protest because the the voices sort of PR arm they put out a press release that kind of suggested I should go back a bit. I that first year I won this award for my writing that um
2: a James Beard Award.
3: Yeah, I won yeah, I won a James Beard Award and um it was very exciting for the voice, I guess. And they framed, they wrote this press release in a way that was like, we're getting rid of all these people. And like, this person is our new talent, the new person. They just, I felt like I was being used in a way that was really gross. And, um, I left. Was it
2: a hard call to leave?
3: No, No, I mean, not at the time. No, it, it wasn't hard. I was, I was so angry. And, um, and and also maybe this goes back to like feeling confident at that time. I was like, I'll find something else. I've been, I've freelanced for so long. I can, I know how to cook. I know how to copy edit. Like I can do other stuff. This doesn't have to be the thing that I do. It was an emotional decision, but I think it was, you know, the right decision.
2: But the immediate aftermath of it was kind of tricky.
3: Yeah. It took me like a year to find work again, basically.
2: So what, what brought you out of that? Next period, like, you know, six months here, six months there. And then you landed at Bloomberg, right?
3: Yeah, I went to Bloomberg, which was uh, Chris Rouser was starting. It was called Bloomberg Luxury, the Bloomberg Luxury team. And he was offering a critic job again, which seems so exciting. And they had the budget to sort of really do it properly.
2: I mean, it's Bloomberg Luxury.
3: Yeah, it, it was so different, <laughs> so different from the voice. Um, they'd say, please go to Tokyo for three days and do this story. Or can you go to Buenos Aires next weekend to try this drink? Like, it was just, it was really wild. Was it fun? It was. It was really fun. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and then you ended up at The Times, like a year later. And I've never really talked to you about this before, but it kind of feels to me like you have... A bunch of different jobs there. You're a columnist in the magazine. You're the restaurant critic in California. You were doing a lot of reporting before you went to California. You're also writing features. Is there connective tissue between those different jobs, those different kinds of writing? Like, is there some larger story you're trying to tell or question you're trying to answer? I guess what I'm asking is like, uh, how do you think about your work?
3: Well, I don't think of, I don't think of like the body of work. I only think about the thing I'm working on right now. Maybe there's unconscious stuff happening. And I think like everyone who writes is sort of their brains making these connections between the pieces they've written and the research they're doing now and the research they did six months ago or whatever, but I'm not aware of it, you know? I feel very selfish saying this, but I'm usually guided by what I'm excited about right now. So sometimes that's someone who's making beef patties and, you know, has launched a business in the middle of the pandemic and is figuring it out. Or um, sometimes that's how my relationship with cars has changed in the last year. Like, it's just... um, it's not very strategic, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not strategic at all. It probably should be. I should be thinking about the space I get to take up and the stories I get to tell in a in a in a more um holistic way. Uh, but i but I don't
2: well, I'm gonna try and get you to think about that,
3: okay. Good luck,
2: even if there's no actual through line, <laughs> I'm gonna propose some and see what you think of them because, you know, I just went back and read a lot of writing of yours over the last couple of days, like back to back to back. And I do think there are themes in what excites you at the very least. And one of them, I think, is that they are often stories that I don't think I would have read previously in the New York Times. They're from parts of the food world that are not just in the Times. I think across food writing are not often covered. Food carts and stories about restaurant workers not about the person whose name is on the marquee stories about like amateur cooks with cult classic cookbooks (laughs) that otherwise would have gone unwritten about maybe and i wonder whether that is conscious for you or whether that just happens to be what you're interested in and other people aren't
3: i do like i always like what other people might consider a small story, you know? um,
2: What do you mean by that?
3: Like, not the story that an editor immediately gets excited about.
2: (laughs) (laughs) By small story, I mean not the story that's immediately pleasing to
3: editors. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know, like a a story that doesn't immediately seem like a feature. Mm -hmm. Where someone needs to be convinced it deserves space. I'm usually drawn to stories like that.
2: Do you have a theory about why that is?
3: No. (laughs) Do you, do you, Max?
2: (laughs) I have a theory about why you're drawn to those? Yeah. I think what I'm asking is, and both things can be true, right? But is there an element of politics in the like broadest sense of the term about covering those smaller stories that I think are not often covered in the industry in which you work. You know what I mean? Like, is it strictly that that's what you are drawn to or is part of the reason that you are drawn to those stories that they tend to not get as much coverage as big fancy chefs at big fancy restaurants?
3: Yeah, yeah. I think that definitely is part of it. I'm really aware, writing for the New York Times, that I'm part of this, like, larger, very complicated ecosystem. And there are writers covering hard news and their writers doing investigations that are taking months and writers covering like agricultural policy. And because of that, it means I can write about not, I don't want to say anything, but you know, it means that there's space for whatever it is. I feel like writing about in the food world.
2: And when do you know whether or not like beef patties are a story? Or how do you know that that amateur cookbook is a thing that you want to spend your time with? Like, you could write about anything. So how do you know what it is you want to write about?
3: I think sometimes it's just that I can't stop thinking about a thing or I start researching it and it does seem like there's a story, but there's always a story. It's really just, are you going to give it attention and time Or are you going to leave it and give your attention and time to something else? Like, of course, beef patties are a story, you know? Anything is a story.
2: One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because, you know, you've got this column in the magazine that's pretty personal or often is personal. Mm-hmm. There are restaurant reviews or there were restaurant reviews. And now there's something that's a kind of hybrid of restaurant reviews and reporting. And then you've also written these features. I got to make sure that we talk about the Kit Kat story, but there are these long reported features as well. And, I'm interested in the process there like whether you feel like those are different parts of your brain or is it all the same thing like it's a lot of it's a lot of hats to be wearing at once it feels like
3: it does feel like all the same thing to me when I'm when I'm working but it's also like a different team you know my editor at the magazine is a different editor I have a recipe editor for that column I have to file the recipe first which means it's like a different neural pathway because i i don't start with the story i start with the recipe so i think like the process itself influences some of the decisions i make but in ways i don't completely understand
2: but they all feel like part of the same like uh project to you it's not like okay from noon to 5 p.m i'm gonna be like a restaurant critic and then tomorrow from 10 to 1 i'll be working on a recipe
3: Oh, I wish I was that organized. (laughs) Yeah, no, no.
2: It all just kind of blends together. Yeah. Do you see themes between the work in those various realms for you? Like, is there a connection between, you know, the like explosion of flavors of Kit Kat bars in Japan and your love of oysters?
3: (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, you've just read all these pieces, like, together. So maybe you're seeing things that I don't see. I just like read
2: the book of Tejal, you know?
3: (laughs) That's so embarrassing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sometimes I recognize patterns and, you know, it can feel like a, there's a lot of cliches in food writing and I try to avoid them, but I think sometimes I employ them without realizing it. You know, like there's certain food stories that get told and retold and retold. Like if you're, an immigrant kid who had a lunchbox moment. That's like one genre of food. There's all these things, and then there's the oysters and love and like aphrodisiacs. It's so. And with that column, I remember thinking, oh, I want to. I really want to write about oysters and love in a way that's not gross. <laughs> <laughs> like how do how do I do that kind of column? without using any of the sort of aphrodisiac-y clichés that yeah. are super disgusting. So sometimes I'm really aware and writing against that and sometimes I'm not.
2: I'm glad that you brought up food clichés because that was another thing I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> Some amount of food writing is like um so adjective laden that I don't know what people are talking about.
3: But I love adjectives.
2: No, adjectives, I'm I'm not anti-adjective. I'm saying that there's like a genre of food writing in which they are piled on so heavily that, like, to totally bust this metaphor, like, you can't taste the food under all the sauce. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I like don't, nice. I, I don't know what they're, uh, I don't know what they're serving. You know? <laughs> and I, it feels fussy to me, is how it feels. You know what I mean? It feels like fussy right around. And that's not there in your work. And I wonder how hard because, like, I love adjectives too. There's only so many of them out there, and. True that feels like a challenge to me to find unique ways to describe umami, you know, like to describe similar textures or something like, how do you, uh, how do you do that?
3: Well, I try and if it's a restaurant review, there are going to be a couple of paragraphs at least about the food itself. And I try to have descriptions of food that double as like maybe the words are connoting something else at the same time so that you don't have to read too much about the food so it doesn't get boring but also like text it's not just about taste it's about texture and emotion and all the other things that you feel when you're eating like a restaurant review is not just about what's on the plate I mean there's the deliciousness hopefully but maybe there's like The technique, the technical brilliance, the way a dish references a tradition, which could be a cultural tradition or something else, the aesthetics, the style, like there's so many things. If it's a tasting menu, there's, you know, when you're walking around a museum and like the painting you see in the first room informs the way you see the painting in the next room, just because you saw it a few moments ago, like a fine dining menu if it's a tasting menu and they're bringing you dish after dish like something about the sequence you know it's really tightly curated so something about the progression is like speaking to you so it's not just um flavor
2: and how conscious are you while you're experiencing a meal like that of all of those various inputs like are you sitting there with a notepad next to you how does it how does it work
3: I don't take notes during a meal. Uh, when I first started, I tried to. I would write like a text message on my phone and send it to myself, or I would draft a, an email or something. And I'd read stories about critics like going into the bathroom and writing notes in the toilet or whatever.
2: <laughs> but, and that was all to stay incognito as a restaurant critic?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it just, uh, it's such an interruption of that if you're trying to explain experience the thing. I don't know how you can experience it if you're interrupting it by taking notes, but then at the same time, you don't want to forget, you know, I think of the menu itself as my, that's like the real note that I take home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes I'll add stuff. I'll annotate a menu when I get home with thoughts or I'll take a couple of photos and the visual cues will remind me of things.
2: But you're, when you sit down to write as much as anything, you're like recalling the experience. Yeah seems hard
3: (laughs) I mean it is in a way it's not like the book if you're reviewing a book where you've highlighted a passage and you can go back to it you cannot go back to that meal there is no reference text there's no source text
2: and it is I would imagine like it is about the emotional experience of the meal I mean there's going to be lots of technical things that come up but like on some level the thing that's going to sit with you is what it felt like to experience it
3: yeah, definitely. And I think that the restaurant is always, it's like telling you a story about itself. And then it's also telling you a story about yourself, you know, and there's a gap between what the restaurant tells you it is and what it is. And I'm just like walking around with a tape measure, like measuring that gap, <laughs> with like a pencil in my ear, you know? Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> how wide is the gap between particularly in your columns, like the uh, Tejal Rao that I have read about and the one that you feel like you are, you know what I mean? Like you're a character in your work. You've written about your love life. You wrote recently about having COVID and it's always particularly in the column in the magazine. It's always in the context of a recipe. Like there's, A story you're telling about a dish or about a ingredient but there's a lot of you in there and I wonder why if I got the tape measure out like what's the uh (laughs) what's the gap between Tejil in the column and Tejil in in real life
3: well it's funny because I think of myself as being so private but then sometimes in that column I'll just you know like losing, when I lost my sense of smell, it was so scary. And it was so scary that I felt like I had to write about it. Because I hadn't at that point, when I filed the piece, I hadn't recovered any of my sense of smell yet, which I, I have recovered some of it now, or a lot of it now. But yeah, so I guess there there is that gap between my idea of myself as being this really private person, and then my tell all column.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, I mean I have, I imagine there are lots of things that you don't tell, but it is yes. it, it is interesting. That's what kind of what I was asking about is like what's not in there. But it is interesting that you think of yourself as a very private person and yet yeah. you have a column in which you write about yourself in a very well-read magazine.
3: <laughs> yeah, I know. That's like so what a ridiculous thing. And I well, the column, the oyster column, that was a you know, compressing a 15-year relationship into like 800 words. So obviously a lot (laughs) is not in that column.
2: Well, what I would like to do here is get into that relationship in great depth. (laughs) Are those columns hard? Are they hard to write?
3: Yeah, they can be. Some of them I write really quickly within a couple of hours and then some of them... I have to like sit with for a couple of days. I think it's like any other kind of writing. And I don't know why sometimes I can do them really quickly. And sometimes they take a long time.
2: Has it gotten easier as you do it more? Like, do you see the world through the writing in the column now? Like, can you turn that part of your brain off? Can you just like casually go have dinner now?
0: Oh,
3: yeah, I absolutely can turn that like the critic brain.
2: Restaurant critic brain, like when we finish talking, can you just like go to the fridge and grab a slice of cheese or whatever? Eat
3: something really gross. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I can, like, make myself a peanut butter and green chili and cilantro sandwich and just, like, eat it (laughs) in front of the fridge.
2: And it it doesn't have to fit into, like, some larger, like, metaphor. It's just, sometimes it's just a peanut butter, green chili and cilantro sandwich.
3: A hundred percent, yeah. I actually feel like I have to turn on the critical thinking with food because I love it so much.
2: (laughs) You mean like to actually be critical of it?
3: Just to see beyond because sometimes you're just obliterating yourself with like something delicious Mm -hmm. and there's nothing else, you know, it's just you and your sandwich or whatever. It's just you and this bowl of noodles. And I have to remember it's not just me and this bowl of noodles. (laughs)
2: Like, I'm gonna have to explain this bowl of noodles to other people. <laughs> Can I ask you about another part of your job? Yeah. Your title is California Restaurant Critic. Is that right? Yeah. My understanding is that you had lived in New York for a long time, like 14 years or something like that. Do I have that right?
3: Yeah, over a decade. I yeah.
2: Somewhere in that range, and you had worked at the Village Voice. You'd worked at Bloomberg. You'd popped around to. Gourmet and written for the Atlantic all, and Time Out New York All these places Like you were You were writing about food Either in New York Or from New York For a long time And then took this job Essentially covering The state of California When did you take that job?
3: It was like September October 2018
2: 2018 So you had some real time Before COVID hit Where you were Doing the job Yeah When you landed in L.A. How do you start doing that job? It's like you could do anything, almost.
3: Yeah, and that was oh, that was really paralyzing. I didn't know. I thought, should I be going to really important classic California restaurants the Times has not covered in the past? And should I make sure that's part of our archive? Or do I start with... Um, the first story was really difficult. I, I didn't know what to do, and I ended up making that process part of the first story, which was, I think the first piece I filed from LA was about classic restaurants. It was like learning to be in Los Angeles and learning what Los Angeles is through its classic restaurants. And that was my first piece. And that was the the real process of like falling in love with LA because I didn't know LA very well.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess that's just like, I'm just curious about what that experience is like. You show up in a place and suddenly you have to be explaining it.
3: Yeah, I felt like I was, I felt like I was learning and every lesson I learned was like public, you know, starting from scratch and, but, but I kind of grew up this way. Like I grew up moving around a lot and I mean, never being in the position of like reporting on that obviously, but, um, I went to like 19 schools before I graduated high school. Really? And yeah, yeah. That's so um, many schools. (laughs) That's a lot of schools. And sometimes would be like dropped into places where I didn't speak the language uh, in the middle of the school year. And it's just, I don't want to say it feels normal, but I think, and I also think this is why I like writing and reporting. I like observing things. You know, I I like being the new guy. (laughs) I'm comfortable being the new guy.
2: Does that make it so you don't feel like a part of places?
3: No, I feel I feel so at home in LA now. I love it so much. And I really hope I can stay here forever. <laughs> and when I was growing up, I just felt like I belonged to all of those places that we moved to. You know, when we lived in France, like I was not French. I was never French, but I went to French schools. I spoke French and I felt, French you know I didn't know that like I wasn't
2: yeah how did moving around so much like growing up in all these different places in 19 different schools I totally understand how it makes an impact on your ability to land in a new place and not feel daunted by figuring it out but does your childhood have an impact on like the kind of work you do like the kind of stories you're drawn to do you think moving around in that way
3: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I would love to like visit, you know, universe 8930 where I had a different (laughs) childhood and I'm working as a journalist and like, I'd love to know what kind of stories a different version of me would write, but I don't know.
2: (laughs) And where does the feature writing fit into all of this? Like, maybe we could spend a second talking about the Kit Kat story. Like, where does... I don't know exactly how long that story was, but a four or five thousand word story about the many, many, many flavors of Kit Kat in Japan—like, <laughs> where does that fall in in the sort of ecosystem of your work?
3: Well, so technically, that's not something that's part of my job. You know, I I write the magazine column once a month, and then stories for the food desk. And this was, I I feel like I got really lucky because my editor, Claire Gutierrez, was working on that issue and they were looking for ideas, you know, so I pitched them one that would take me to Japan (laughs) to (laughs) eat chocolate. (laughs) Was that the
2: impetus of that story? That it was an excuse to go to Japan and eat chocolate?
3: Well, no, I really, really wanted to write about, it was actually, gosh, there was a different candy that I wanted to write about and I was just having a really hard time getting access And then when I started researching Kit Kats in Japan, the Nestle Corporation there was, they were really open to answering questions and also to letting me in the factory if I could get there. So I was really excited about that.
2: That story is really, um, my experience of that story is that it's very fun.
3: Oh, thanks. (laughs) Did,
2: Did it feel that way to work on for you?
3: It did feel fun, but it also, so that was my first piece the first piece I was doing for the Times at that length, you know, like a really long reported piece. And I think I was in i was in Tokyo for a few days and then I went to the the Mochi factory and a couple other places for a few days. And I was so hyper aware that if I didn't get what I needed in that moment, I wouldn't have another opportunity. You know, I wouldn't be able to walk back over to the factory and like see what I'd made. And so I remember being really anxious and taking way more written notes than I normally would and just kind of panicking the whole time. So no, I didn't. (laughs) That
2: doesn't sound like very, that
3: doesn't sound very fun. (laughs) I did enjoy, like I enjoyed parts of it, but I do remember feeling really stressed that I, or maybe the the thing I was taping, I would lose the audio. I was working with a translator Mm -hmm. um, for some of the interviews and she was really incredible, but it also adds a layer of time because Every interview that would be an hour is now two, you know.
2: Right. Yeah, that seems pretty intense.
3: I loved working on that piece though. I really loved writing it.
2: What did you love about it?
3: Well, being able to <laughs> This is you can tell I'm not someone who like writes long pieces a lot. Like it felt like such an opportunity to write Most of what I do is compressed into like 1500 words. And so I almost always know when I'm starting the piece what it's going to sort of look like, what's mm-hmm. going to be in it and with a 5000 word piece i didn't know how it was going to end until i wrote my way through it and that was really fun
2: it's funny that the act of the reporting was so like anxiety inducing <laughs> yeah. but just like the sort of blank canvas of the piece was like freeing in a way i think there's a lot of people for whom it's the reverse you know what i mean that like
3: oh right
2: not knowing how they're going to stick the landing is like an awful, awful experience and the reporting is really fun.
3: I mean, I definitely have had pieces where that's the experience, but in this case, I just felt like I could relax when I got to my desk and actually had everything I needed. And also Claire Gutierrez is a really amazing editor, so it was fun working with her.
2: I have more um, existential uh, how you make decisions and how you write questions, but I have a few practical food restaurant critic questions which is like, do you still do the anonymity thing? Are there no photos of you on the internet? Does no one know what you look like? Is that your game?
3: There are a couple of photos of me um, circulating. And so I know that I'm not completely anonymous, but I do still try. I don't, I think anonymity is really misunderstood. I'm not doing like, what Elizabeth does in the Americans and like putting wigs on in my safe house and like getting in and out of disguises and running around. I just make reservations. If I'm going somewhere with reservations in a different name, that's it. So that you're not announcing yourself to the restaurant.
2: But do you also protect your ident- like your public identity? Like, do you not want people to know what you look like?
3: Yes. Yeah. I don't post selfies or post pictures of myself anywhere. Yeah
2: have you ever considered doing it a different way? Because I feel like there was this movement with restaurant critics at some point in the last couple of years where there was a, a sort of desire to do away with that practice.
3: Yeah. I do remember. I remember when Adam Platt announced
2: right, right, right. he was
3: going to, and then a couple of other people too. I, I think it really, it made sense for him because he'd been doing it for so long. He just couldn't pretend that he was anonymous anymore But I think I do manage to, like, get in and out of dining rooms without people knowing I'm a critic more than half of the time, you know? Yeah. Um, And then a lot of places, honestly, a lot of the places I review don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But still, I would would never make a reservation in my own name. Occasionally, a restaurant will get someone making a reservation in my name. It's, like, definitely not me. It's someone else.
2: And did you... It was a conscious decision on your part, right? You had the choice of whether or not you wanted to run stars with your reviews.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it was a big conversation. We weren't sure what we wanted to do, and and I chose no stars. Like, I actually felt really strongly about no stars. How come? I um, I think stars limit the review in a way. You know, I know editors like them and readers like them because... It's like, you know, the number of stars, maybe you don't need to read the review.
2: Those are two pretty like powerful (laughs) constituencies.
3: I know. I know. I just, (laughs) I, I think, I think that the stars would limit the stories that I do. Cause I, if I, let's say I'm writing about a taco truck and I consider it like a five star place, you know, four star place but it doesn't have tables and forks and a ceiling and all those things, it would be confusing to make, you know, and so then I would say, oh, I probably shouldn't review it because I'll have to only give it one. I just think, I think stars are bad.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Editors like them, readers like them, but they're not actually nearly as meaningful as editors and readers think that they are?
3: I just think this, the stars create, you know, like, think about Michelin stars and other like institutions that have stars, the stars become a shorthand for really specific things. Yeah, Like a three Michelin star restaurant has a certain kind of glassware and a certain service style. And there's no room in the three star space for any other kind of restaurant. And I just think that's the wrong way to think about restaurants.
2: You started at The Times in 2016, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're like coming up on your five year anniversary? Yeah. And you've got these different roles that you play. You've got this entire state laid out in front of you to cover. Do you have a sense of where you wanna go in your work? What you wanna do next?
3: I know that I want to report more outside of L.A. because I've been pretty much throughout the pandemic, I've been here at home. I'm in like northeast L.A. in Cypress Park. And um, I just know I want to be out and about reporting and interviewing people when I can do that safely Mm -hmm. and writing stories that aren't um, necessarily like L.A. and San Francisco stories. So... That's probably what I'll do. But that's so, I know that's really vague.
2: I think, I mean, more like, you know, I've asked you about like 400 different times how you choose what to write about. And (laughs) your answer has basically been like, I don't know, that's not a very good question, which is fair. Uh, (laughs) But I think what I'm, I'm trying to figure out is like, do you have some sense, yeah, of like how your interests will evolve, you know?
3: I'm not sure, but I am like, This past year, I've been thinking a lot about what makes a restaurant good. And that sounds vague, but I mean, like, can a restaurant be good if it doesn't have wheelchair access? And like, can a restaurant be good if the farmers picking the tomatoes are getting sick? Like, how much do we consider when we talk about if a restaurant is good or not? Mm. I'm thinking about that. Like if people are being exploited at every single point possible <laughs> along the way, how good is the restaurant really?
2: Given what restaurants are going through collectively, do you think that restaurants will come back thinking more holistically? How do you anticipate that this time will change this industry that you cover?
3: I mean, my my fear is that it won't I worry that the pandemic has like illuminated all of these issues and things are just going to keep going the way that they were. That's like the worst case scenario. Well, no, that's not even the worst case scenario, but that's um, a bad, bad case. That's what I worry about. That nothing will change.
2: That people will just kind of like forget.
3: Yeah. You know, like the reporting that came out of the largest meat processing plants in the country all year long, all just everything, everything. I think everyone's really eager to sit at a bar and have a martini and French fries and everyone wants things to go back to the way that they were. And that might make it easy to kind of forget the things we've seen. I hope not.
2: I hope not too. Thank you for doing this.
3: Oh, thanks so much for chatting with me. I don't really get to talk about. Well, and I think this is also why I'm really inarticulate about some of this stuff is because I, I love like thinking about writing and talking about writing. And it's part of why I love listening to this podcast. Um, It's like something I really, really love. It's just, it's like a little uncomfortable to think about my own writing and talk about my own writing, but it's still fun. I just find it difficult. Why? Because I think a lot of what I do is still intuitive or, um, or even that I don't completely understand it. Like with the Kit Kat story, I wrote my way through that, like from the beginning, to the end not knowing where it would go I mean knowing like I'm gonna have a scene in this factory and I'm gonna have a scene with this person I interviewed but not knowing much more than that and somehow like you sit down and you know your brain will work it out if you keep writing I don't know that like I don't know how it works (laughs) I don't know how to I don't know how it works I don't know how to talk about it Um, But I, it's like something I love so much. I know we're not supposed to enjoy writing, but like I enjoy it so much. It's my favorite thing.
2: (laughs) Do you think that it's maybe your favorite thing because you don't totally understand how it works?
3: Maybe, yeah, maybe.
2: Like I feel like there was a slight thing while we were talking where I was kind of like pushing you to tell me how you think about it. And you were a little bit, you were just kind of like, I would prefer not to think about it so much. (laughs)
3: No, I mean, I'm just embarrassed that I don't know how to answer some of your questions because I think it makes it seem like I don't care, which I do care. I do care about the stories I choose. I do care about, you know, I care about all this stuff, but I don't know how to, I don't know why I make some of the decisions that I make.
2: But we were talking at the beginning, we were talking earlier about like confidence. Isn't that just like what that confidence is? Being willing to trust your instincts.
3: That's like a really nice way to think about it. Yeah, maybe. I do have that. I know that if I have a few hours, I can write a column.
2: But that's, that feels slightly different than what you're gonna write about. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, It's yeah. like knowing that what you are interested in is interesting, is a form of confidence.
3: But then the writing itself is like an act of persuasion, right? Like the writing itself is convincing someone that it's interesting, especially someone who doesn't think it is.
2: Do you feel better about your work now than you, than you once did? Has that changed?
3: Um, I usually feel good about a piece after I filed it there's like a little window of time where um, I feel good about it. And then I just stop thinking about it and move on to the next thing. You know, I don't, and I don't feel good about the piece forever. It's just like a few minutes.
2: (laughs) What's, what's the like default? If like you get a couple of minutes of feeling good after you file the piece, what's your like?
3: And then I just don't think about it anymore. Yeah. Then I don't feel anything.
2: Then you feel nothing.
3: Yeah. And my, and my brain is like a sieve. So all the research I did too is like, is like gone. Like everything is gone. I just forget it all and make space for the next thing.
2: So like, we're going to hang up now and then you'll just forget about this.
3: Max who? Yeah.
2: (laughs) Good. I think that's the way it should be. Uh, You're the best. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Max. This is really cool. Thank you. I so appreciate you.
2: There's a thing that um, happens sometimes with these interviews, which is uh, that they come to an end and I'll say, thanks so much for coming on the show. And the person will say, thanks for having me. And then we'll stop recording And then they'll say something really interesting. And uh, I don't know if you caught it there. But that's kind of what happened with Tajel, except she kept recording. And so did I. And I'm glad that we did. That was the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Lenski. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper. Our intern is Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring the show. And thanks so much to Tejal Rao for uh, not hitting stop on a recorder. We'll see you next week.
1: Why do you run? Why does anyone?